Chapter 9, Part 3 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dorothy Godfrey Smith. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 9, Part 3. Scarcely had she done so than there was a knocking at the door. The queen understood what was required of her, but as she had not finished praying, she begged those who were come to fetch her to wait a moment, and in a few minutes she would be ready. The earls of Kent and Shrewsbury, remembering the resistance she had made when she had had to go down to the commissioners and appear before the lawyers, mounted some guards in the anteroom where they were waiting themselves, so that they could take her away by force if necessary should she refuse to come willingly, or should her servants want to defend her. But it is untrue that the two barons entered her room, as some have said. They only set foot there once, on the occasion which we have related, when they came to apprise her of her sentence. They waited some minutes, nevertheless, as the queen had begged them. Then, about eight o'clock, they knocked again, accompanied by the guards. But to their great surprise the door was opened immediately, and they found Mary on her knees in prayer. Upon this Sir Thomas Andrew, who was at the time sheriff of the county of Nottingham, entered alone, a white wand in his hand, and as everyone stayed on their knees praying he crossed the room with a slow step and stood behind the queen. He waited a moment there, and as Mary Stuart did not seem to see him, Madam, said he, the earls have sent me to you. At these words the queen turned round, and at once rising in the middle of her prayer, Let us go, she replied, and she made ready to follow him. Then, Bourguin, taking the cross of black wood with an ivory Christ which was over the altar, said, Madam, would you not like to take this little cross? Thank you for having reminded me, Mary answered. I had intended to, but I forgot. Then, giving it to Annibal Stewart, her footman, that he might present it when she should ask for it, she began to move to the door, and on account of the great pain in her limbs, leaning on Bourguin, who, as they drew near, suddenly let her go, saying, Madam, your majesty knows if we love you, and all, such as we are, are ready to obey you, should you command us to die for you. But I, I have not the strength to lead you further. Besides, it is not becoming that we, who should be defending you to the last drop of our blood, should seem to be betraying you in giving you thus into the hands of these infamous English. You are right, Bourguin said the queen. Moreover, my death would be a sad sight for you, which I ought to spare your age and your friendship. Mr. Sheriff, added she, call someone to support me, for you see that I cannot walk. The sheriff bowed and signed to two guards whom he had kept hidden behind the door 
to lend him assistance in case the queen should resist, to approach and support her, which they at once did. And Mary Stuart went on her way, preceded and followed by her servants, weeping and wringing their hands. But at the second door, other guards stopped them, telling them they must go no farther. They all cried out against such a prohibition. They said that for the nineteen years they had been shut up with the queen, they had always accompanied her wherever she went, that it was frightful to deprive their mistress of their services at the last moment, and that such an order had doubtless been given because they wanted to practice some shocking cruelty on her, of which they desired no witnesses. Bourgoin, who was at their head, seeing that he could obtain nothing by threats or entreaties, asked to speak with the earls. But this claim was not allowed either, and as the servants wanted to pass by force, the soldiers repulsed them with blows of their arquebuses. Then, raising her voice, "'It is wrong of you to prevent my servants following me,' said the queen." and I begin to think like them, that you have some ill designs upon me beyond my death. The sheriff replied, Madam, four of your servants are chosen to follow you, and no more. When you have come down, they will be fetched, and will rejoin you. What? said the queen. The four chosen persons cannot even follow me now? The order is thus given by the earls answered the sheriff, and to my great regret, madam, I can do nothing. Then the queen turned to them, and taking the cross from Annabel's steward, and in her other hand her book of hours and her handkerchief. My children, said she, this is one more grief to add to our other griefs. Let us bear it like Christians, and offer this fresh sacrifice to God. At these words, sobs and cries burst forth on all sides. The unhappy servants fell on their knees, and while some rolled on the ground tearing their hair, others kissed her hands, her knees, and the hem of her gown, begging her forgiveness for every possible fault, calling her their mother and bidding her farewell. Finding no doubt that this scene was lasting too long, the sheriff made a sign, and the soldiers pushed the men and women back into the room and shut the door on them. Still, fast as was the door, the queen nonetheless heard their cries and lamentations, which seemed, in spite of the guards, as if they would accompany her to the scaffold. At the stairhead, the queen found Andrew Melville awaiting her. He was the master of her household, who had been secluded from her for some time, and who was at last permitted to see her once more to say farewell. The queen, hastening her steps, approached him, and kneeling down to receive his blessing, which he gave her weeping. Melville, said she without rising, and addressing him as a thou for the first time, as thou hast been an honest servant to me, be the same to my son. Seek him out directly after my death, and tell him of it in every detail. Tell him that I wish him well, and that I beseech God to send him his Holy Spirit. 
Madam, replied Melville, this is certainly the saddest message with which a man can be charged. No matter, I shall faithfully fulfill it, I swear to you. What sayest thou, Melville? responded the Queen, rising. And what better news canst thou bear on the contrary than that I am delivered from all my ills? Tell him that he should rejoice, since the sufferings of Mary Stuart are at an end. Tell him that I die a Catholic, constant in my religion, faithful to Scotland and France, and that I forgive those who put me to death. Tell him that I have always desired the union of England and Scotland. Tell him finally that I have done nothing injurious to his kingdom, to his honor, or to his rights. And thus, good Melville, till we meet again in heaven. Then, leaning on the old man whose face was bathed in tears, she descended the staircase, at the foot of which she found the two earls, Sir Henry Talbot, Lord Shrewsbury's son, Amias Paulette, Drew Drury, Robert Beale, and many gentlemen of the neighborhood. The queen, advancing towards them without pride but without humility, complained that her servants had been refused permission to follow her, and asked that it should be granted. The lords conferred together, and the moment after the Earl of Kent inquired which ones she desired to have, saying she might be allowed six. So the Queen chose from among the men Bourgoin, Gordon, Gervais, and Didier, and from the women, Jean Kennedy and Elspeth Curl, the ones she preferred to all, though the latter was sister to the secretary who had betrayed her. But here arose a fresh difficulty, the earls saying that this permission did not extend to women, women not being used to be present at such sights, and when they were, usually upsetting everyone with cries and lamentations, and as soon as the decapitation was over, rushing to the scaffold to staunch the blood with their handkerchiefs, a most unseemly proceeding. My lords, then said the queen, I answer and promise for my servants that they will not do any of the things your honors fear. Alas, poor people, they would be very glad to bid me farewell, and I hope that your mistress, being a maiden queen, and accordingly sensitive for the honor of women, has not given you such strict orders that you are unable to grant me the little I ask. So much the more, added she in a profoundly mournful tone, that my rank should be taken into consideration. For indeed, I am your queen's cousin, granddaughter of Henry the Seventh, queen dowager of France, and crowned queen of Scotland. The lords consulted together for another moment, and granted her demands. Accordingly, two guards went up immediately to fetch the chosen individuals. The queen then moved on to the great hall, leaning on two of Sir Amias Paulet's gentlemen, accompanied and followed by the earls and lords, the sheriff walking before her, and Andrew Melville bearing her train. Her dress, 
as carefully chosen as possible, as we have said, consisted of a coif of fine cambric trimmed with lace, with a lace veil thrown back and falling to the ground behind her. She wore a cloak of black stamped satin, lined with black taffetas and trimmed in front with sable, with a long train and sleeves hanging to the ground. The buttons were of jet in the shape of acorns and surrounded with pearls. Her collar in the Italian style. Her doublet was of figured black satin, and underneath she wore stays laced behind in crimson satin, edged with velvet of the same color. A gold cross hung by a pomander chain at her neck, and two rosaries at her girdle. It was thus she entered the great hall where the scaffold was erected. It was a platform twelve feet wide, raised about two feet from the floor, surrounded with barriers and covered with black serge, and on it were a little chair, a cushion to kneel on, and a block also covered in black. Just as having mounted the steps she set foot on the fatal boards, the executioner came forward, and asking forgiveness for the duty he was about to perform, kneeled, hiding behind him his axe. Mary saw it, however, and cried, Ah, I would rather have been beheaded in the French way with a sword. It is not my fault, madam, said the executioner, if this last wish of your majesty cannot be fulfilled. But not having been instructed to bring a sword, and having found this axe here only, I am obliged to use it. Will that prevent your pardoning me, then? I pardon you, my friend, said Mary, and in proof of it, here is my hand to kiss. The executioner put his lips to the queen's hand, rose, and approached the chair. Mary sat down, and the earls of Kent and Shrewsbury standing on her left, the sheriff and his officers before her, Amias Pole behind, and outside the barrier the lords, knights, and gentlemen numbering nearly two hundred and fifty, Robert Beale for the second time read the warrant for execution, and as he was beginning the servants who had been fetched came into the hall and placed themselves behind the scaffold. The men mounted upon a bench put back against the wall, and the women kneeling in front of it, and a little spaniel, of which the queen was very fond, came quietly, as if he feared to be driven away, and lay down near his mistress. The queen listened to the reading of the warrant without seeming to pay much attention, as if it had concerned someone else, and with a countenance as calm and even as joyous as if it had been a pardon and not a sentence of death. Then, when Beale had ended, and having ended, cried in a loud voice, God save Queen Elizabeth, to which no one made any response. Mary signed herself with the cross, and rising without any change of expression, and, on the contrary, lovelier than ever, My lords, said she, I am a queen, born sovereign princess, and not subject to law a near relation of the Queen of England and her rightful heir. 
For a long time I have been a prisoner in this country. I have suffered here much tribulation and many evils that no one had the right to inflict. And now, to crown all, I am about to lose my life. Well, my lords, bear witness that I die in the Catholic faith, thanking God for letting me die for his holy cause, and protesting, today as every day, in public as in private, that I have never plotted, consented to, nor desired the Queen's death, nor any other thing against her person, but that, on the contrary, I have always loved her, and have always offered her good and reasonable conditions to put an end to the troubles of the kingdom and deliver me from my captivity, without my having ever been honored with a reply from her. And all this, my lords, you well know. Finally, my enemies have attained their end, which was to put me to death. I do not pardon them less for it than I pardon all those who have attempted anything against me. After my death, the authors of it will be known. But I die without accusing anyone, for fear the Lord should hear me and avenge me. Upon this, whether he was afraid that such a speech by so great a queen should soften the assembly too much, or whether he found that all these words were making too much delay, the dean of Peterborough placed himself before Mary, and leaning on the barrier, Madam, he said, my much-honored mistress has commanded me to come to you. But at these words, Mary, turning and interrupting him, Mr. Dean, she answered in a loud voice, I have nothing to do with you. I do not wish to hear you and beg you to withdraw. Madam, said the dean, persisting in spite of this resolve expressed in such firm and precise terms, you have but a moment longer. Change your opinions, abjure your errors, and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone that you may be saved through him. Everything you can say is useless, replied the queen and you will gain nothing by it. Be silent, then, I beg you, and let me die in peace. And as she saw that he wanted to go on, she sat down on the other side of the chair and turned her back to him. But the dean immediately walked round the scaffold till he faced her again. Then, as he was going to speak, the queen turned about once more and sat as at first. Seeing which, the Earl of Shrewsbury said, Madam, truly I despair that you are so attached to this folly of papacy. Allow us, if it please you, to pray for you. My lord, the queen answered, If you desire to pray for me, I thank you, for the intention is good. But I cannot join in your prayers, for we are not of the same religion. The earls then called the dean, and while the queen seated in her little chair was praying in a low tone, he, kneeling on the scaffold steps, prayed aloud. And the whole assembly, except the queen and her servants, prayed after him. Then, in the midst of her orison, which she said with her Agnus Dei round her neck, a crucifix in one hand and her book of hours in the other, 
she fell from her seat on to her knees, praying aloud in Latin, whilst the others prayed in English. And when the others were silent, she continued in English in her turn, so that they could hear her praying for the afflicted Church of Christ, for an end to the persecution of Catholics, and for the happiness of her son's reign. Then she said, in accents full of faith and fervor, that she hoped to be saved by the merits of Jesus Christ, at the foot of whose cross she was going to shed her blood. At these words, the Earl of Kent could no longer contain himself, and without respect for the sanctity of the moment, Oh, madam, said he, put Jesus Christ in your heart, and reject all this rubbish of popish deceptions. But she, without listening, went on, praying the saints to intercede with God for her, and kissing the crucifix, she cried, Lord, Lord, receive me in thy arms outstretched on the cross, and forgive me all my sins. Thereupon, she being again seated in the chair, the Earl of Kent asked her if she had any confession to make, to which she replied that, not being guilty of anything, to confess would be to give herself the lie. It is well, the Earl answered. Then, madam, prepare. The Queen rose, and as the executioner approached to assist her disrobe, Allow me, my friend, said she. I know how to do it better than you, and am not accustomed to undress before so many spectators, nor to be served by such valets. And then, calling her two women, she began to unpin her coiffure, and as Jean Kennedy and Elspeth Curl, while performing this last service for their mistress, could not help weeping bitterly, do not weep, she said to them in French, for I have promised and answered for you. With these words she made the sign of the cross upon the forehead of each, kissed them and recommended them to pray for her. Then the queen began to undress, herself assisting as she was wont to do when preparing for bed, and taking the gold cross from her neck she wished to give it to Jean, saying to the executioner, my friend, I know that all I have upon me belongs to you, but this is not in your way. Let me bestow it, if you please, on this young lady, and she will give you twice its value in money. But the executioner, hardly allowing her to finish, snatched it from her hands with, It is my right. The queen was not moved much by this brutality, and went on taking off her garments, until she was simply in her petticoat. Thus, rid of all her garb, she again sat down, and Jean Kennedy approaching her, took from her pocket the handkerchief of gold embroidered cambric which she had prepared the night before, and bound her eyes with it, which the earls, lords, and gentlemen looked upon with great surprise, it not being customary in England and as she thought that she was to be beheaded in the French way, that is to say, seated in the chair, she held herself upright, motionless, and with her neck stiffened to make it easier for the executioner, who, for his part, not knowing how to proceed, was standing without striking, axe in hand. At last the man laid his hand on the queen's head, 
and drawing her forward, made her fall on her knees. Mary then understood what was required of her, and feeling for the block with her hands, which were still holding her book of hours and her crucifix, she laid her neck on it, her hands joined beneath her chin, that she might pray till the last moment. The executioner's assistant drew them away, for fear they should be cut off with her head. And as the queen was saying, In manus teas domine, the executioner raised his axe, which was simply an axe for chopping wood, and struck the first blow, which hit too high, and piercing the skull, made the crucifix and the book fly from the condemned's hands by its violence, but which did not sever the head. However, stunned with the blow, the queen made no movement, which gave the executioner time to redouble it, but still the head did not fall, and a third stroke was necessary to detach a shred of flesh which held it to the shoulders. At last, when the head was quite severed, the executioner held it up to show to the assembly, saying, God save Queen Elizabeth. So perish all Her Majesty's enemies, responded the Dean of Peterborough. Amen, said the Earl of Kent, but he was the only one. No other voice could respond, for all were choked with sobs. At that moment the Queen's headdress falling disclosed her hair, cut very short and as white as if she had been aged seventy. As to her face, it had so changed during her death agony that no one would have recognized it had he not known it was hers. The spectators cried out aloud at this sign, for frightful to see, the eyes were open, and the lids went on moving as if they would still pray, and this muscular movement lasted for more than a quarter of an hour after the head had been cut off. The queen's servants had rushed upon the scaffold, picking up the book of hours and the crucifix as relics, and Jean Kennedy, remembering the little dog who had come to his mistress, looked about for him on all sides, seeking him and calling him, but she sought and called in vain. He had disappeared. At that moment, as one of the executioners was untying the queen's garters, which were of blue satin embroidered in silver, he saw the poor little animal, which had hidden in her petticoat, and which he was obliged to bring out by force. Then, having escaped from his hands, it took refuge between the queen's shoulders and her head, which the executioner had laid down near the trunk. Jean took him then, in spite of his howls, and carried him away covered with blood, for everyone had just been ordered to leave the hall. Bourgois and Gervais stayed behind, entreating Sir Amias Paulet to let them take the Queen's heart, that they might carry it to France, as they had promised her, but they were harshly refused and pushed out of the hall, of which all the doors were closed, and there there remained only the executioner and the corpse. Brantome relates that something infamous took place there. 
End of chapter 9, part 3. Recording by Dorothy Godfrey Smith.